This is reaction. Movements, moments, and monsters of the reactionary right. The Centralia Tragedy, Part 4, Council for the Damned. The people of Montesano had never seen anything like it. The notoriously evil and treasonous IWW on trial for the murder of war heroes was an event not to be missed. A small lumber town of just 2,500, Montesano's boarding houses quickly filled up, and people from all over the region stayed in hotels 10 miles away in Aberdeen, driving to the courthouse each morning. By the first day of the trial, every store between Aberdeen and Montesano was sold out of guns and ammunition. The courtroom was at capacity on January 26, 1920, when the trial began. Of the 200 seats, 50 were occupied by veterans in uniform. The American Legion paid them $4 a day to sit and watch the trial, significantly more than most lumberjacks made working in the woods. The money was raised from the Centralia Elks Club, the West Coast Lumbermen's Association, and F.B. Hubbard's Eastern Railway and Lumber Company. A special barracks was constructed in town for the veterans, and when court was not in session, they prowled the streets and train station looking for and turning away anyone suspected of being an IWW member or a potential witness for the defense. It was obvious they were there to intimidate, and it was a good investment on the part of the Legion and lumbermen. The press was also out in full force, from international wires like the Associated Press and International News Service to small labor publications like the New York Call and the Finnish paper Industrialisti. George Vanderveer arrived in Montesano after a devastating loss in Chicago, where 101 Wobblies had been found guilty of sedition after the jury deliberated for less than an hour. He was crushed, and had been sure of an acquittal given the dearth of evidence. On top of that, he had not been paid, a professional hazard when one works for people who don't have any money. By the time he arrived to defend the Centralia men, his home had been repossessed, and his marriage was in shambles, troubles exacerbated by his chosen client pool. But Vanderveer admired the Wobblies and took pride in his reputation as counsel for the damned. He didn't agree with some of their more radical tactics, but he liked their tenacity and believed in the cause of free association. In all of these ways, he shared much in common with Elmer Smith. But the loss at Chicago, his personal woes, and the fact that so many other Wobblies had been arrested in the region meant that Vanderveer and his partner Ralph Pierce were underprepared for the trial. The Attorney General's advice to prosecute IWW defendants in large batches all at once was working, and a good defense attorney was hard to find. Pierce was working on two other cases at the same time, 36 Wobblies in Tacoma and 11 in Montesano, right across the hall from the Centralia 10. Both of the other trials were for criminal syndicalism. Both of them resulted in convictions. The prosecution was what you'd expect. Clifford Cunningham was a legionnaire, a close friend of Warren Grimm, and an attorney for various lumber magnates, including Hubbard. He had been among the mob that brought Wesley Everest to the jailhouse after he killed Dale Hubbard, and rumor had it that he'd been present at the lynching, too. Cunningham never should have been allowed to prosecute the case, 
not only because of his relationship to the man the Wobblies were charged with murdering, but because he had a very direct self-interest in seeing them convicted. It would have protected him from any future culpability regarding the lynching or the raid. The other lead attorney, W.H. Abel, was also personal counsel to F.B. Hubbard and had helped lumbermen send workers to jail during the strikes of 1918. The political lines were clearly drawn from the beginning, and the IWW planned to make use of the trial as a political education opportunity. It wasn't that the organization, or Vanderveer, didn't care about the fate of the men they defended, but there was a bigger picture to be considered. The Industrial Worker, the biggest IWW newspaper, explained this bigger picture as such. Legal defense can be valuable to the IWW only as it serves the purpose of providing publicity and propaganda. We realized that the Centralia victims were our own vanguard, and this realization was not born upon us because Vanderveer made this or that objection, but because of the publicity that the legal battle received. In other words, when the choice was between giving the defendants the best possible defense or generating propaganda for the IWW, the latter was the larger goal. For example, Vanderveer was told by the IWW General Defense Committee to defend the 10 as a group, rather than seeking separate trials. For one, there wasn't much cash to go around and 10 separate trials would have been costly. And second, an acquittal, or a conviction for that matter, of all 10 all at once would be much more spectacular as a propaganda tool. As such, the trial of the Centralia men en masse generated much more attention, but it also put the individual men at greater risk, especially those who weren't directly tied to the actual killings. But the defendants agreed to the riskier strategy if it meant they had a better chance at convincing the jury of the IWW cause, if they could show that their struggle was right and just. The defense's argument was simple. The legionnaires, mere cat's paws of the commercial interests and logging behemoths of the region, had instigated a violent confrontation with the IWW members of Centralia. This wasn't a trial about whether specific men had killed other specific men. It was a trial against the industrial workers of the world as an organization and as an ideology. It was about the right to freely associate and to defend one's property and one's life. His opening argument concluded, I don't know what the verdict will be today, but the verdict ten years hence will be that these men were within their rights and that they fought for cause, that these men fought for liberty. As if the mass trial wasn't enough of a disadvantage, the judge did just about everything in his power to hamstring the defense from the get-go. During jury selection, Judge Wilson ruled that, so long as a jurist didn't hate the individual defendants, their hatred of the IWW generally was acceptable. But far more prejudicial was the huge swath of evidence that he would not allow to be entered at all. The 1918 attack on the IWW hall was not to be discussed. The Elks Club meetings where overt threats were made against the Wobblies and their hall, and which Warren Grimm attended, were also not admissible. The attack on Tom Lassiter was not admissible. When Elmer Smith testified that he had warned Britt Smith of the attack the morning of the 11th, he was not allowed to explain why he gave this warning, despite the fact that the warning was what he was on trial for. Any evidence of the hostilities against the IWW in Centralia was barred, on the grounds that it could not show Warren Grimm specifically to have been in on any conspiracy.
All Vanderveer could do was pose such questions to his witnesses, receive the prosecution's objection, and move on in an attempt to give the jury a vague sense of the fear and agitation in Centralia. A key witness that Vanderveer had hoped to call was Earl Kraft, the electrician in charge of the city's lights. He would testify that on the day of the parade, he left the power station at 7.15 p.m. The lights went out, and when he returned 15 minutes later, the chief electrician, the first assistant electrician, and the mayor were all in the station, and the lights were restored. But the prosecution objected that this testimony didn't relate to the killing of Warren Grimm, and it could not be submitted. Chaplin puts it eloquently, These offers were received by his honor with impassive judicial dignity, but the faces of the Lumber Trust lawyers were wreathed with smiles at the audacity of the suggestion. The corporation lawyers very politely registered their objections, which the judge as politely sustained. Confessions from two of the men arrested on Armistice Day were devastating to the defense. The first was Lauren Roberts, who gave a number of statements to the prosecution implicating himself and several other men in the shootout, and confessing that he did not see any parade marchers approach the hall before the shooting began. Ralph Chaplin claims that Roberts, along with several other prisoners, was tortured, and that Lauren Roberts had the light in his brain snuffed out. Today he is a shuffling wreck. He is not interested in things anymore. He is always looking around with horror-wide eyes, talking of voices and wires that no one but himself knows anything about. There is no telling what they did to the boy, but he signed the, quote, confession. To counter Lauren Roberts' confession, Vanderveer brought in several psychiatrists who testified that he was experiencing hallucinations, paranoia, and a fear of conspiracies, and that he could not recognize people whom he should know. Roberts believed that wires had been run under his bed to pass electricity through it every night. He believed that Vanderveer was, in fact, Colonel Disk, who had been sent to put down the lumber strikes and created the loyal legion of loggers and lumbermen. Inside the courtroom, Roberts was a complete wreck. He couldn't sit still, looked around feverishly as if he were surrounded by specters, and at one point he, out of nowhere, rushed to the empty witness stand and took a seat. Roberts was never called to testify, and he was eventually found not guilty by reason of insanity. But his confession was nonetheless entered into evidence for his own plea, against Vanderveer's objections, and that was plenty to damage the defense's case. Tom Morgan had turned state's evidence in exchange for immunity, and he testified that Smith had been in on the plans and that the first shots came from one of the hotels while the parade was carrying on peacefully that only after that had the legionnaires broken ranks. But it was clear that this account differed from the one Morgan had given back in November, and Vanderveer asked for a copy of Tom Morgan's pretrial statement. Cunningham insisted that the statement had been lost, though it seems more likely that he simply suppressed the evidence. Chaplin has choice words for Tom Morgan. Judas acted similarly, but Judas later had the manhood to go out and hang himself. In the fourth week of the trial, 100 soldiers suddenly set up camp on the lawn in front of the courthouse, in full view of the jury and all the spectators in the courtroom. A member of the prosecution's legal team had called the governor to request the troops. He did not notify the judge or the sheriff. 
The prosecutor claimed that the troops were necessary because his detectives had evidence of armed wobblies organizing in the hills around Montesano, that they were preparing to bust their comrades out of jail. No such plot, or even rumor of a plot outside of his allegation, was ever discovered. But it didn't matter. The presence of the troops was plenty prejudicial, and jurors began to fear for their safety, even secretly arming themselves. Vanderveer demanded that the troops be sent away, but the judge claimed to be powerless as they were sent by the governor. They remained on the lawn for the duration of the trial. Most of the trial evidence was simply differing eyewitness testimony. Some saw the legionnaires attack first, others heard the shots first. Some thought they might have heard this at this time, but maybe it had been the other way around. Some saw Warren Grimm in front of the hall among the rest of the mob, and others saw him in the street with the parade, ducking gunfire. To take a dig at the faultiness of many of these testimonies, Vanderveer waited for the prosecution's eyewitness to point out Eugene Barnett in the group of defendants. Vanderveer then called for a recess, and when they returned, the defendants took different seats. The next witness identified the wrong man as Barnett, not noticing the switch because he didn't actually recognize any of them. Dr. Frank Bickford was a key witness for the defense. He had testified to the coroner's jury that he and the other legionnaires assaulted the hall before the shots began, and that he had even offered to lead the assault. But on cross-examination, Bickford admitted that he was partially deaf, and that it was possible he had missed the first shot. In my non-expert opinion, having been around gunfire, I think it's highly unlikely that someone who can hear well enough to answer questions in front of a jury would be able to miss the deafening crack of a gun being shot. In any event, this was how it went with several defense witnesses. Yes, they saw the Legion charge first. But maybe they didn't, on second thought, Mr. Cunningham. They couldn't be sure. After two witnesses testified that they had definitely seen Warren Grimm in front of the hall, they were arrested in full view of the court and jury on charges of perjury. Though several witnesses were willing to admit off the record that they had seen Grimm staggering away from the Union Hall after the shooting, it was difficult to get them on the stand given the swift retaliation they likely faced. As for Frank Bickford, according to Chaplin, the Centralia business community tried mightily to ruin him after the trial. On top of all of this, legionnaires openly threatened potential witnesses for the defense. Investigators for the defense were arrested. The charges conveniently dropped once the trial was over. Vanderveer's mail was somehow being redirected to the prosecution, whose detectives were following him everywhere he went and eavesdropping on his conversations with clients and their families. I think it's fair to say that Vanderveer, with Elmer Smith, a defendant himself practically working as co-counsel, did the very best that he could in spite of the incredible challenges he faced. After seven weeks and 271 witnesses, the defense rested and the jury deliberation began the following day. It took them until dinner time to return with verdicts. Elmer Smith and Mike Sheehan were acquitted. Lauren Roberts was found not guilty by reason of insanity. Eugene Barnett and John Lamb were found guilty of third-degree murder, and the rest were guilty of second-degree murder. But the judge rejected the third-degree murder charges because no such crime existed in Washington, and so they returned charging Barnett and Lamb with second-degree murder as well. 
It was a compromise between the jurors who sought a first-degree murder charge and those who wanted acquittals. Vanderveer could have asked for jury instructions that included manslaughter, a much lesser crime, but he didn't want to give the appearance of his clients being partially guilty. A manslaughter charge would have meant only a few years in jail, but the needs of the labor movement outweighed the needs of a few lumberjacks in Washington. At least, it seems that's how the IWW attorney saw it. Years later, several jurors revealed that they accepted the verdict for fear that if they stuck to their guns about acquittal, they may end up with a hung jury, and the next time around the men could face first-degree convictions. And of course, they feared for their safety, with good reason. Who knows how the mob would have responded to acquittals all around. These factors led to a very contradictory verdict. Second-degree murder, by definition unpremeditated, but also conspiracy to murder, which allowed the men to be tried together regardless of whether their bullets killed Grimm. How can a conspiracy not be premeditated? The jury requested that Judge Wilson be lenient with his sentencing, expecting the men to be given two or three, maybe five years. But no such luck. The seven Wobblies convicted of the murder of Warren Grimm were sentenced to the maximum 25 to 40 years in prison. Everybody hated the verdict. To some, the men should have been strung up for the murder of Warren Grimm that very evening. To others, a sentence of up to 40 years for defending yourself and your beliefs was monstrously un-American and a dangerous assault on liberty and justice. The labor jury sent by the Seattle Central Labor Council determined that the defendants were innocent, that there was a conspiracy to raid the hall, that the attack preceded the shots, and that had the men gotten a fair trial with all the evidence presented, they would have been acquitted. But it was unlikely that the determination of the labor jury would convince anyone of anything they didn't already believe. Elmer Smith was in no mood for celebrations and felt profoundly guilty for getting off scot-free while seven other men were shuffled back to cold cells. And Lauren Roberts, too, who, although not guilty by reason of insanity, would be locked up just the same. As they were filing out of the courtroom, Smith promised them, voice trembling and tears rolling down his cheeks. Boys, I will never forget you, and as long as there is a breath in my body, I will work for your release. But as Smith was packing up his few belongings in the jail cell he'd just been freed from, a sheriff came to arrest him and Mike Sheehan, who had also been acquitted. The charge was conspiracy to murder Arthur McElfresh, and it was hoped that a new jury would find them guilty. The two men spent the next three months in jail, until some friends were able to raise the $5,000 for their bond. It would be a year before they could finally plead their case to a judge, when Smith offered a motion to dismiss based on the argument that the men had effectively already been tried on the charges. The judge agreed. But Elmer Smith felt anything but free. While in jail shortly after the trial, he read an editorial in a Montesano newspaper that cut him to the bone. It is not difficult to arouse fear in a bad conscience. Suspicion always haunts the guilty mind. Smith did it well. 
Once their fears were aroused, he pretended to advise them as to their rights, knowing full well the probable consequences. And then while these stupid men, inflamed by his pernicious gossip, went out to slay, their lawyer and advisor went elsewhere. He possessed not even the mistaken courage of his fellow conspirators. The acquittal of this slinking coward, when men of lesser intellect are found guilty of murder through conspiracy, is an outstanding travesty on reason and justice. Smith did not believe himself to be guilty, but he also did not believe that he was any more innocent than the men who now sat in the Walla Walla State Prison. He was ashamed that he had no portion of their punishment to share. But he could do something. He could keep his courtroom promise to the men and never rest until they were released. So that's what he did. 1920 marked the beginning of the end of the robust labor agitation and activity of the previous 20 years. The post-war recession saw a sharp decrease in the demand for lumber and ships, and in Washington, 15,000 loggers and mill workers were out of work. There was a significant drop in both strikes and union membership, and the continuing Palmer raids of January 1920 put more than 5,000 supposed radicals in jail. Though certainly demoralizing, these factors weren't enough to halt all wobbly efforts, and the Centralia trial worked as intended. It was a wellspring of IWW propaganda for a decade to come. Newspaper articles, pamphlets, magazine stories, songs, and poetry all flooded out of IWW printhouses and into the streets of every working-class neighborhood in Washington, and even in the country. One such work was Ralph Chaplin's The Centralia Conspiracy, which I have quoted from at some length, the first complete account of the events from the IWW perspective. It was published in May of 1920 and sold 40,000 copies in the first month it was printed. But the events were good propaganda for the forces opposing the IWW too, and the Armistice Day Massacre was used to justify crackdowns on labor organizing at an unprecedented scale. The criminal syndicalism law was putting Washington Wobblies in jail by the dozens. The state Supreme Court had used the law to rule that mere membership in the IWW was itself a crime, making it difficult for defense attorneys to find witnesses willing to testify openly as union members. Strikes and work slowdowns became synonymous with violence, and reading the wrong newspaper was the legal equivalent of bombing a government building. Speaking out against a law was the same as breaking it. By May 1, 1920, there had been 74 cases of criminal syndicalism in the courts. Of the 56 that had been ruled on, 52 resulted in convictions, most with sentences of 5 to 10 years. Elmer Smith, now consumed by his role as counsel for the damned, threw himself into criminal syndicalism defense cases with varying degrees of success. They were difficult cases, and judges often had rock-bottom thresholds for admissibility of prosecutorial evidence. Selling newspapers on a street corner could land you in jail for years. And Wobblies used their own tactic that had varying degrees of success. After a large arrest, they would send in dozens of members to commit the same so-called crime and also be arrested thrown into overcrowded cells and putting new mouths to feed on the books of local cities and counties. It became increasingly expensive to house, feed, and try these numbers of prisoners, 
and in some places the police relaxed their heavy hands for the sake of municipal budgets. But Elmer Smith's other endeavor was public speaking and rallying support for the Centralia prisoners, and he faced major opposition in doing so. Arrested in towns large and small throughout Washington, Smith never once backed down under threat of arrest, and would often begin his speeches with the Declaration of Independence, or the First Amendment, just for the spectacle of being arrested for exercising the very rights he was reciting. One story that he loved to tell was of giving a speech in Centralia when the only words he could get out before being arrested were, There's an old document which runs somewhat as follows. We hold these truths to be... At which point the chief of police shouted him down, For the peace and dignity of Centralia, I arrest you. At the jailhouse, the chief rifled through the cards containing Smith's speech, berating him for the radical and inflammatory content. Thomas Jefferson wrote those words, Smith rebutted, at which the chief shouted to his deputies, I knew there was someone else back of all this. Get Thomas Jefferson. He's the guy you want. Smith was a remarkable orator, and he was beloved by working people, wobblies or otherwise. Even in small cities, he could draw crowds of hundreds and thousands. His popularity and fiery rhetoric drew the attention of the Bureau of Investigation, who kept close tabs on Smith and collaborated with local law enforcement to document his activities and rein him in when possible. Over the years, Smith's personal file with the BOI grew to hundreds of pages. But when Smith teamed up with Legionnaire Captain Edward Call, the two were unstoppable. Call was disturbed by the bad reputation the Legion had in the area and decided to look into this Armistice Day massacre everyone talked about. He determined that the Legion had a guilty hand in the affair and set about trying to get them to take some responsibility. Smith and Call spoke together at many events to advocate for the release of the Centralia 7. Call even wrote an open letter to the Legion about his findings, which elicited a scathing response from the Workers' Party. But if you want to hear about that fascinating document, you'll need to head on over to patreon.com slash reaction podcast, where I'll do an overview on these very feisty public correspondences. I'm also going to do a deeper dive into Elmer Smith's life after the Centralia tragedy for Patreon. There's just too much to tell here, and it deserves a standalone treatment. Elmer Smith was a good man, whose only crime was caring so much for others that he neglected his finances and his family. It's not that the Smith house was bereft of love. Elmer was a light for his entire family, and his children idolized him. But he was, much like Chaplin's casual worker, generous to a fault, and would give away the last potato in his larder if he knew someone who needed it. And it was this generosity that led him to an early grave. 1930 saw two developments in the cases of the Centralia prisoners. Lauren Roberts was determined to be sane, and he was freed from the state penitentiary. That same month, James McInerney died in prison from tuberculosis. Two thousand mourners attended his funeral. Roberts moved to a small town near Olympia, where he felled timber and hunted deer until his death in 1976. Then, in 1931, Governor of Washington Roland Hartley granted Eugene Barnett a six-month leave to tend to his wife, who was suffering from cancer. After she died, the governor gave Barnett an executive parole, along with O.C. Bland. 
Barnett moved to Idaho and became a rancher, as well as an officer in the International Woodworkers Union and an active member of the Progressive Party. Bland got six years of freedom living in Centralia before he died in 1938. Four men remained behind bars in Walla Walla. Way back in November of 1919, Elmer Smith had started to develop stomach pangs while pacing his small cell in Chehalis and drinking pot after pot of black coffee. The pains got worse over the next decade, and he had two surgeries to attempt to repair the severe ulcers he had developed due to stress, overwork, and poor diet. Elmer refused to follow protocols for his health, and he worked and traveled and spoke to crowds and drank coffee to stay awake. He was so driven that by sheer will he lived the life of a healthy man despite his serious illness. By 1931, he was in near-constant pain and could hardly work anymore. On March 20, 1932, Elmer Smith died in a sanitarium of a hemorrhaging ulcer. He was only 44 years old. Centralia had not seen such a funeral since her founder, George Washington, died in 1905. Hundreds of loggers, railroad men, farmers, and people from every walk of life filed into the Centralia mortuary, and thousands more huddled outside in the cold rain. He was eulogized in local and national papers, publications that had once called him a traitor and a coward, but now sung his praises for his devotion to justice. The hordes of people who traveled to Centralia to see him off spoke well enough to his true legacy and the impact he had on the people who knew him. His longtime friend Judge J.M. Phillips gave the eulogy, which he ended with a poem that Smith had selected for his burial, Mourn Not the Dead by Ralph Chaplin. Mourn not the dead that in the cool earth lie, dust unto dust, the calm, sweet earth that mothers all who die, as all men must. Mourn not your captive comrades who must dwell, too strong to strive, within each steel-bound coffin of a cell, buried alive. But rather mourn the apathetic throng, the cowed and the meek, who see the world's great anguish and its wrong, and dare not speak. Clarence Martin had campaigned for governor under the promise that he would release the remaining four Centralia prisoners, which he did just after taking office in 1933, a year after Elmer Smith's death. Bert Bland moved to Wisconsin. John Lamb settled down in Centralia, where he lived until his death in 1949. And Britt Smith went back to the woods, a perennial timber beast, and joined the Woodworkers Union. Ray Becker, however, refused a simple parole release. He wanted a full pardon, clearing him of any wrongdoing. But with the other men freed, public pressure subsided. And finally, in 1939, the governor commuted his sentence on the condition that Becker leave the state. He did not. And he wasn't happy about being forced out of jail either. He never got the pardon that he demanded. He moved to Vancouver, Washington, and opened a leather shop, dying there in 1950. The events of November 11, 1919, have been called many things. The Armistice Day riot, the Centralia massacre, the Centralia conspiracy, and, of course, the Centralia tragedy. Each has its own political inflection, but I like tragedy the best because it captures how truly heartrending this whole story is. It's difficult to find a happy ending in any of this. 
Eight men spent their best years buried alive in cold cells. The IWW was grievously weakened by the time the men got out of prison, having suffered from unprecedented political repression, as well as an ideological schism in 1924 that caused the union to bleed members. By 1930, membership had shrunk to 10,000, from its height at 100,000 just seven years earlier. Elmer Smith may have gotten off in the trial, but he built himself a prison of his own, with the release of the Wobblies as his jailer and his personal guilt as his executioner. He did not even live to see the fruits of his labor. In poor Wesley Everest, quick with a smile and a joke and slow to kneel before any man, was murdered at the age of 27, left swinging over what would be known for many years as Hangman's Bridge. On the fifth anniversary of the Centralia tragedy, a statue was installed in George Washington Park. Called the Sentinel, the statue depicts a soldier holding a rifle at rest, the collar of his trench coat turned up against the elements. He stands still and looks straight ahead with a stern expression. The engraving on the stone base reads, It was their destiny, rather it was their duty. The highest of us is but a sentry at his post. On the sides of the stone are bronze reliefs of the four legionnaires, and on the back their names are engraved with the message, Slain on the streets of Centralia, Washington, while on peaceful parade, wearing the uniform of the country they loyally and faithfully served. The statue was the only public tribute to the events of 1919 until 1997, when John Regan, owner of the former Elks Club building, decided to do something about it. He reached out to Mike Alewitz, a well-known muralist who focuses on labor and the plights of workers. The creation of the mural was directed by the Committee for the Centralia Union Mural Project, which consisted of labor unionists, students, retirees, and members of the IWW. The mural captures something much larger than the punctuated historical events I've described here. Titled The Resurrection of Wesley Everest, the main figure in the center of the mural is indeed Wesley, dressed half in working clothes and half in army uniform both fists raised triumphantly in the air. Old Tom Lassiter stands to the side with dark glasses and cane, holding a copy of Industrial Worker. The Wobbly Hall contains a man reading a paper and another holding a rifle, as if to defend the building and the other man. On the other side, the Elks Club, full of rats sitting around a noose, a knife, and a pistol. A pig surrounded by bags of money and stacks of lumber snoozes in a corner while Sabo Tabbies, Chaplin's angry black cat symbolizing worker rebellion, rain from the sky. Along the bottom, prisoners behind bars are licked with flame, menaced by mobs wielding weapons and American flags. The symbolism of the mural is rich, and it is meant to bridge a gap between the labor struggles of 1919 and those of today. A banner at the top of the mural reads, Organización, Educación, Emancipación. Elowitz wanted his mural to speak to the present as well as the past, and thought the Spanish words could indicate the struggles of contemporary workers from Mexico and Central and South America, modern-day analogs of the reviled timber beasts. George Vanderveer told the Montesano jury, I don't know what the verdict will be today, but the verdict ten years hence will be that these men were within their rights and that they fought for cause, that these men fought for liberty. I think he was mostly right, 
though even today there are fierce divisions in Centralia. The Legion fought hard against the resurrection of Wesley Everest mural, and just recently, October of 2022, the Centralia City Council voted unanimously to approve a new plaque in Washington Park to be placed next to the Sentinel, which will present the IWW side of the Armistice Day Parade. There was bitter disagreement over the plaque, its historical accuracy, and especially the proposed inclusion of the IWW logo. But a local wobbly named Mike Garrison has spent years advocating for a new remembrance of the events, and it appears he has won on at least one front. The new plaque will list the Union victims of the Centralia tragedy with their prison sentences, and of course Wesley Everest's lynching. It will challenge the Sentinels' claim that the Legionnaires were on peaceful parade and correct the record that the men were defending their Union Hall. And it's a testament to what Elmer Smith declared at the end of his trial testimony in 1920. I don't think you can kill ideas with a bayonet. Thanks for listening to this episode of Reaction. If you like the show, please rate and review it. And consider supporting my work by visiting patreon.com slash reactionpodcast. There you can find all the episode scripts, as well as bonus audio content that supplements the main episodes. Follow the show on Twitter at Reaction Podcast for episode updates, and send your questions or feedback to reactionpod at gmail.com. This show is written and produced by me, Brittany Gill. Until next time...